This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Zoketsu Norman Fisher and Ken McLeod, exploring key questions in contemporary Buddhist Dharma, Western spiritual practice in general, and the potential for transformation in multiple directions inherent in the modern crises of the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change. Among the topics considered are how senior spiritual practitioners are dealing with the challenges of the current pandemic, the commodification of spiritual technology in the contemporary Western world, and the distinction between seeking results within the horizontal dimension of life versus the cultivation of depth within the vertical dimension. In addition, we touch on the growing importance of technologies such as Zoom in maintaining spiritual connectivity, and we conclude with reflections on what we have come to value and reevaluate after decades of spiritual practice. Soketsu Norman Fisher is an American poet, writer, and Soto Zen priest, teaching and practicing in the lineage of Shunru Suzuki. He is a Dharma heir of Sojun Mel Weitzman, from whom he received Dharma transmission in 1988. Fisher served as co-abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center from 1995 to 2000, after which he founded the Everyday Zen Foundation in 2000 a network of Buddhist practice group and related projects in Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Fisher has published more than 25 books on poetry and nonfiction, as well as numerous poems, essays, and articles in Buddhist magazines and poetry journals. His most recent book is The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. After learning Tibetan, Ken McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1995, Kalu Rinpoche authorized Ken to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, Ken began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher center model and the minister church model and developed a consultant client model. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. As sometimes happens with energetic conversations with spiritual practitioners transmitted over electronic media, we had an unusual number of unexpected cell phone calls and Zoom breakdowns during the recording. Some of this has been edited for continuity and some left as we all experienced it. However, these interruptions don't detract from the quality of the discussion. Norman Fisher and Ken McLeod, welcome both back to the Mystical Positivist. Thanks. Great to be here. Great to be here with Ken. It's a a delight to have you both back. And um, we have an unusual situation continuing in in our common lives. And we thought we would have some conversation around that with regard to spiritual practice. So um, in the email exchanges that we did, 
about what we were going to talk about before this program, uh, Ken had asked, I guess, friends what they would be interested in hearing us discuss. There's a lot of things to discuss, but, um, but one of the questions that came up is um, how helpful it would be and encouraging for people to hear that even senior teachers and practitioners have difficult days during our common pandemic crisis. So that's kind of a, kind of a starting point. I have some other topics I want to bring up later, but, um, but I think it, it gets to some of, the, some of the core issues of what makes spiritual practice spiritual practice, what makes practitioners different than people who aren't trying to engage in a spiritual practice. And so I invite any responses that come up to this question posed by one of Ken's friends. Norman, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? You go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the first thought that comes to mind in that question is that uh, I think a lot of people, when they start spiritual practice, uh, think they're going to get some place where the ordinary vicissitudes of life are not going to bother them anymore. Uh, I certainly did when I started off. And uh, the, uh, I was gradually disabused of that notion in the course of my practice and uh, being with people who had uh, long history of practices. And, uh, they all found some situations difficult and uh, they had certain things that went on inside them. And I, I began, so my whole understanding of what spiritual practice is about uh, gradually changed over the years. And uh, I was asked uh, a question about enlightenment very recently. And uh, the answer that I came up with is, is we have this idea of enlightenment, but as we as time goes on, the picture kind of disintegrates in front of us. And uh, so at this point, uh, yeah, I have my ups and downs. And with this uh, crisis, the pandemic, uh, my principal, my initial reaction to it was that I found it very disorienting. Uh, so, so many of the usual uh, touch points in life uh, weren't there. And, uh, and and I think all of us have had to learn to negotiate life a little differently. Uh, in that, I do find that the years of practice uh, have, I think the most significant effect is that uh, I'm probably more ready to relate to how things are rather than how that I want, I want them to be. I still want them to be different, but uh, I tend to relate to them how they are and, and go on from there. And, uh, I, I, and that's enough for now. Norman, what about you? Well, um, yes, I, all of that makes sense to me, and I would say the same. But I have to say that uh, in this period of time, 
to be honest, I, I haven't been that, uh, you know, upset or disoriented uh, at all, really. It's It's been, I mean, uh, I have been getting increasingly uh, upset about the world and what's happening in the world over a, lo a long period of time. I mean, we're all of the same, we're relatively the same age, and I think we all came of age in a moment when we suddenly looked around and we thought, oh my God, this this is a train wreck, this world of crazy hyper-capitalism and militarism and all that. <clears throat> and, and we were worried about the environment in, in the 1960s. And so my whole life I've been waiting for the other shoe to drop, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and in recent years, especially with the climate change discussion, you know, really getting, uh, really, this is terrible. You know, we're going 100 miles an hour. Everybody is going too fast, etc. We all know the story. So I was already, you know, in a generalized state of upset that I was happy about. In other words, I didn't want to be complacent and say, oh, well, it's all one, it's all good. No, no, I'm upset. <laughs> so I was already upset. And I don't think I'm any more upset now that this happened. In a way, it's sort of like, yeah, something was going to have to happen to stop us in our tracks. The way it was going was really pretty insane. And so on my on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't mind at all that I'm not getting in a car, <clears throat> although I found out today that my car died and it's a little bit of a problem. <laughs> but anyway, I don't have to get in a car. I, I get on airplanes a lot, and I don't go on any airplanes, and, and, and I don't miss my trips to the airport. I mean, I've gone so often that I, you know, have a routine and so on and so forth, but still it's always a little bit anxiety producing to pack your bag. What did I forget? What time do I have to leave? Don't miss the plane, all that. I don't have to do any of that. So actually my life is more peaceful and I'm able to devote more time to reading and writing, which I really enjoy and I'm always struggling to find time for. So, and, and of course I'm aware of the catastrophe of, of all around me and people getting sick and dying. And I actually say prayers for them every day and I spend a certain amount of time each day that I set aside intentionally for, for grieving and making sure I'm paying attention to the suffering all around me, which I, I understand is there. Um, but really, in terms of my daily activities and, you know, whether or not I'm like, you know, unhappy or not happy, I, I'm not really experiencing so much of that right now. I, I really am not. And, and uh, but I think what, what Ken says to me is, the, is really the the key thing. I mean, whenever you're willing to deal with things as they are, rather than complaining that they're not the way they ought to be in your book, which I spent a lot of time in my life doing and don't really do so much anymore, that makes all the difference. You know, that, that little simple thing, which is really no big, great accomplishment. And yet I agree with Ken that it, it does, you know, that practice does help you with that. It certainly helps me. Although I have to say that I can never really make a cause and effect um, statement because a lot of things changed in my life. I got older, for one thing. Maybe just getting older, you know, you're too lazy to complain. <laughs> <laughs> that has not my, been my observation as an automatic uh, I don't, I don't consequence know. of aging. I don't know, but in other words, I, I can't really say it's practice, you know. It's, uh, 
but I, ha I mean, the fact that I've been practicing and paying attention to practice for a long time, that's true. But also many other things in my life have been going on for all these years. So. Well, let me, let, me, let me jump in on that, uh, especially that last point. Um, because, you know, I mean, generally my life in the last couple of months has been going more or less as you were describing, Norman. I'm not mostly affected. In fact, I'm working maybe a little bit less on some things. I have more time for gardening, which is my great love. And this is the time of year That's in the spring for that to be um, front and center. But, but when it came to, there was a moment sometime in April when the, the uh, project I've been committed to for 17 and a half years to have this spiritual bookstore um, uh, continue, because I think it's been of service to the community. We have many people tell us it's of service to the community. And when the situation seemed to me to be one where, oh, I really have to question, is this going to end? And not, not the way I envisioned it ending. Um, I'll admit that the, you know, that, that, that was upset, that it, I was upset. I was emotionally attached to something that was other than what's happening. But the pro, but, but the point that's congruent with, with Ken's suggestion at the beginning here is that I was very, you know, relatively quickly able to recontextualize back to Oh, if the universe, the universe is a lot bigger than me, all kinds of things are bigger than me. Um, not much I can do about it. And if there's not much I can do about it other than what I can do about it, then there's no point in, in feeling bad. Mm -hmm. You know, so, um, that being said, I'm, I'm luckier than most people or, or than many people anyway, in terms of my own personal comfort, you know, um, because, I don't, uh, I don't, I'm not dependent upon a job, uh, that has, that has gone away, you know, for food on the table. And there are plenty of people like that. So it's, you know, I, I feel a duty to support people to the extent that is, seems appropriate and real, uh, reasonable to me. So that's part of, part of action that actually I find <laughs> agreeable agreeable to to my state is to is to tune into into that so so if if this had all happened if i if i'd been 20 years old i'm so sorry i don't know how that happened that's okay so if this had all happened if this pandemic had happened when i was 25 i don't think i would have had the um, well, I know that I wouldn't have had the resources and I look back at who I was manifesting as. I wouldn't have had the resources to be able to let go of my expectations about how my livelihood, livelihood was supposed to go, how my life was supposed to go. So, so I'm going to say that for me, at least, uh, spiritual practice has had, has had a real effect. And I think it's important to, to acknowledge that. Well, I, one, one thing I want to say in response to what Ken was bringing up is 
that I think the with the with spiritual practice problems don't go away in, per se, but I think our relationship to them shifts. And I certainly, you know, we come out of a tradition that has more of the valence of the Gurdjieff work, and there's much more of a focus on being present to discomfort. You know, Gurdjieff is always saying, do what the body doesn't want to do, you know, do what it hates. You know, that that's his kind of way of looking at um, uh, our relationship to automatic well, I, factors I, of resistance. I guess, I, I mean, I would call it a way of uh, developing a right. muscle to be able to right. not be but, owned by that. But I think, and certainly with our, or with our own teacher, the uh, focus was to bring, be willing to put our attention on that which is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. A- and... So if I were to say that there's a distinction between someone with a, a long-term practice and someone who doesn't really have a uh, articulated spiritual practice, it's the degree to which one is comfortable uh, putting one's attention on that which is uncomfortable or that which one may naturally want to avoid. And and the difference in responses then become very uh, dramatic because someone who doesn't want to put attention on that which is uncomfortable, seeks all sorts of ways to distract themselves. And that leads to a kind of a fragmentation of experience, which I think ultimately is existentially not very satisfying. But I I think we need to be careful here. Uh, I agree with you, uh, but I don't think that's exclusively rich uh, spiritual quality. That is, I've seen plenty of people in the business world and in, in other areas who have developed the same capacity of just relating to things as they are uh, through mm-hmm. their disciplines. I think it is uh, the result of having a practice, but there I'm using practice in a very broad sense, not just spiritual. Yeah, and I'm, yeah let me respond uh, briefly because in my corporation, the uh, corporation actually has a vice president of integrity. And during this mm-hmm. crisis, there's a number of Zoom meetings that are being held to communicate ways in which people can be resilient. And they're talking about how you can step back from the reactivity of your experience. So it's very fascinating for me to listen to this because it is it serves a business end. There's a humanistic impulse because they don't, you know, they I think they genuinely don't want employees to suffer. And yet the lack of suffering serves the business end. So it all kind of works together as this motivation to apply the tools that traditionally have been associated with spiritual practice to something that what I'm hearing you say isn't necessarily uh, spiritual practice. And so there's a distinction here with spiritual practice and resiliency training that I think I hear you saying, and I'm kind of interested in how both of you guys uh, see that distinction. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as I was voicing the question, I was wondering how I was going to answer it when you turned it back on me. <laughs> Perfect. Norm, your turn to go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, when I was listening to Stuart say that, uh, I, I, it's my impression, and, and Ken, I think, would know better uh, than I would because he's done a lot of work with uh, people in business, coaching, and so on. But it looks to me like, um, like exactly in the example that you gave, Stuart. I have the impression that psychology and business 
coaching and business psychology or whatever you want to call it has borrowed so much from spiritual practice that uh, it's impossible to tease them apart. Now, I think Ken would say, and I would agree, I think Ken would say, I know I would say, that certainly what you find in business or in coaching or in psychology that's borrowed from spiritual practice, that's good, but that's not the full measure of what spiritual practice is. There are many other dimensions to spiritual practice that don't translate very, you know, into, the, into, those, into those realms. And so, yes, we could say, well, what is it about spiritual practice that's not the same as, you know, resilience training or knowing how to take care of yourself psychologically and a million things? As Ken says, that the skill of knowing how to accept what is versus what you uh, wish things were is a skill that any mature person ought to develop. But right. when they're 45 years old, they better. Otherwise, they're going to be like kids screaming and yelling over spilt milk all the time, you know which there are a lot of 45 and 50 and 60 year olds who are like that, but let's hope most people aren't. But spiritual practice is something else too, besides that, I think. Now, Norman's reminding me of a conversation that he and I had over lunch, oh, probably last year sometime. Uh, and that is, uh, we, we both uh, were expressing our, uh, not quite sure the, what the right word is, uh, Norman, you can supply your word, but I'm gonna say discomfort with the tendency to view spiritual practice in utilitarian terms. And I think we're yeah. stepping into that territory right yeah, here. Exactly, yeah. So, yes, there are benefits from spiritual practice, but they aren't the point of spiritual practice. And uh, that's a really important thing, uh, aspect, which I've come to appreciate more and more. One of the ways that I've uh, tried to talk about this is to... Uh, use the analogy of, of the arts, and I'm thinking of music in particular because it's, it's nonverbal. And uh, you can say, what is, what is the benefit of music? Well, there are all kinds of benefits of music, but most people don't play an instrument or, uh, because of the benefits. It, it, it comes from a different place. It comes from a love or something is that they're trying to express something through the music. Uh, not really to get something out of it. And uh, I think the same can be said of spiritual practice. And when I look at myself, uh, you know, the paths not be particularly easy. I don't think anybody's, maybe there are a few people whose, pra- whose path is uh, relatively easy, but I don't know them. Uh, and, uh, but there is, uh, I, I feel more and more that there's something that is, is trying to take expression uh, through me, or uh, I was drawn to something in terms of a calling. And then these, uh, and from the effort and discipline or practice one puts into uh, responding to that calling, then yes, there are certain benefits, but that's, but you, you don't start the spiritual practice, you don't pursue it in order to get those benefits, so that those come about uh, through the process of practice. Well, the way that I try to tend to articulate it now is that what one's looking for in spiritual practice, and I'll have to say what I'm looking for, is a a different way of experiencing life, a different way of of knowing uh, knowing life. And now, why am I drawn to that? I don't know. It's something that's always appealed to me. Uh, I mean, 
going back quite a long time, certainly into my teens. And uh, that's actually been more important to me than a career uh, or a conventional career or family or anything like that. Uh, and that's why I like to use the word the language of calling these days rather than uh, some of the other words that are used. That's interesting. I, I'll just jump in here briefly, but I want to hear what Norman, what you have to say um, in response to that. But uh, because you've ended on the word, when I was a, growing up a, a nice Catholic uh, altar boy um, in the Midwest, the uh, priesthood was understood to be, uh, was characterized as a vocation. And it's not a vocation in the way that, that people take vocational training mm -hmm. to do. It was understood to be something that you were drawn to and um, not that you were trained to do. And I think that's the key, the key point um, you're, you're describing there, Ken. Yes. Yeah, well, I, I completely agree with, I think, the middle points that we're moving in what Ken just said was the idea of a calling, the idea that something is speaking through you, you're drawn to something, and something speaks through you in your being drawn to it. Um, and also the analogy of music. But when, uh, Ken, when you brought up the analogy to music, it made me very sad because, you know, now, with all these stuff about the brain, I think people don't play music because they're drawn to music. They play music because they read a book that said their brain will work better. They'll be able to have, the, their brain will be more effectively operating if they play music. That's and vocational training. Yeah, yeah, vocational training and the other thing. And similarly, people are now doing spiritual practice for the same reason, right. because they read a book that told them that their brain will increase and they'll, therefore they'll be able to be more productive and they'll be able to get into a better school. Their children, your child should play music. If you want your child to go to Harvard, your child should, certainly should play music because uh, first of all, it's good on the resume and your 12-year-old your has to have a resume. And also it's good for his or her brain. So this is under the category of an old white guy, spiritual teacher complaining about the arrangements under which we're living. <laughs> I think that's terrible that, that, is that way. It's just awful. And I think it's like it's the capitalism gobbling up everything in our lives. Now, in the arts, if you're an artist, you might have that calling and that vocation. But now, in order to earn a living as an artist, you have to buy into this idea of to train people in poetry is good for them. They'll be able to be more creative in Silicon Valley if they study the poetry course that you're giving, which you really need for them to study so that you can survive in this culture as a poet. So it's very sad, you know, that the whole thing uh, has become um, overcome by that kind of instrumentalist thinking. And, and we're saying that spiritual practice is really the opposite of that, or certainly not that. A couple of points in response to that, uh, Norman. I agree with you uh, very, very much. But it, the situation is actually worse than that. Uh, now, there, there, there are now at least three places in the U.S., one at Stanford, one in L.A., and one somewhere on the East Coast, that are teaching people the techniques of compassion in which I was trained right. in order to feel better yourself. 
uh, and this is so contrary to the way uh, that it's always been taught. It, it, it's not about cultivating compassion so that you feel better. No, you're cultivating compassion so that you connect with and can respond to the suffering of others. It's not about making yourself feel better. So that's that uh, that commodification of spiritual practice. I think it was Marx who said that the capitalism is the systematic plunder of the treasures of the sages. <laughs> that's nicely and, put. Yeah, and uh, that the one of the things that I I rather like about human beings uh, is and, and nature actually is that. Uh, these cages are set up, but we always find a way out, uh, or some people find a way out. And I think this is a challenge in, in, in the world, even more of a challenge now than it is when we were all growing up. Uh, I think it's much harder uh, for people to find a way out. The people do, that is, that they uh, don't accept the uh, structures or the strictures of uh, the system uh, and uh, start doing something else, however difficult it may be, or doing it another way. And that's, that's the source of human, or that, that's the expression of human creativity. Uh, I, I think one of the, one of the reasons is that uh, I have my, I have my, Got it now? I have my ringer turned off, but somehow all this is happening anyway. <clears throat> Sorry. It's okay. Uh, I'm assuming you could somehow edit that out. If, if not, well, our, our listeners will understand. Well, that, it's a good, a good demonstration of how senior uh, spiritual practitioners and teachers deal with uh, <laughs> unexpected. So you don't have to edit it out is what you're saying. <laughs> it makes my job easier. <laughs> ineffectually, in, ineffectually, but with patience. Ken, I want to, because I was tending to agree with you, I want to uh, argue. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I guess I, I want to, when I've had conversations with people, like we have a mutual friend who um, has quite a consulting practice teaching mindfulness and when I would push that kind of critique on the commodification of mindfulness and the utilization of mindfulness, for instance, to train Monsanto executives to be more effective in the uh, execution of their particular brand of capitalism, he would point out that the power of the practices are such that the it opens the door for people that wouldn't necessarily be opened uh, before. So I guess I would say this, that there's a thousand reasons why people get involved in spiritual practice. And most of those reasons aren't the reasons why people ultimately stay in spiritual practice. Certainly when I got involved in spiritual practice, it was absolutely transactional. You know, I, I wanted power. I wanted power over myself. I wanted power over my world because I felt lost and ineffective. And what I found in the course of spiritual training was that the, that want was the very thing. I, it wasn't to fulfill that. It was to uh, change my relationship to that want and ultimately to have it drop away. So I guess I would challenge that even if at Stanford someone who 
you know, begins life from a very selfish, self-oriented perspective is trained to put their attention on others in a certain kind of way and to practice meta meditation, even if it's sold as a way for them to feel better about themselves, ultimately, don't you think that there is something more profound in that movement of attention that opens a door that might not be opened otherwise? I won't say that it automatically happens or it's, it's part of the process. It can happen and it does happen. You're quite right. Uh, but there, there is also this tendency of commodification. Now, there will be a certain percentage of the people who it, it will open the door. Uh, what percentage that is, I don't know. Uh, Stephen Batchelor uh, says that uh, because of uh, mindfulness cognitive therapy in, uh, in England and in Europe, uh, the retreats that he usually teaches are filled to overflowing. And in fact, all of the meditation centers uh, have very, very full retreats, or at least they did until the virus hit, because there was exactly that overflow that by doing these techniques, people ca came in touch with something deeper in themselves that they didn't know was there. And for a certain percentage, that uh, triggered an interest to explore more deeply, which they could not do within the framework of, say, mindfulness uh, MBSR or MBCT. Uh, and so they started looking elsewhere. So that that definitely happens. At the same time, I I just find it, uh, I think partially because I'm old fashioned, my training is very different, rather disturbing that uh, these practices are being uh, distorted and uh, commodified in the way that they are. Uh, probably helpful for a lot of people, but I think also it, uh, it can mislead people also. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's hard to be uh, against compassion. <laughs> I don't like <laughs> compassion training. I'm against it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like mindfulness. I'm against mindfulness. It's hard to be against that. And, and also, you know, critique is a beautiful thing because you can make uh, an even worse critique uh, against, uh, you know, religion per se, right? Religion, which is not supposedly, let's say, not, let's pretend the religion, religion is not commodified, but then it has these horrible, you know, sexist, patriarchal structures. It has this sort of blind faith element, and uh, then you can start looking at history and you can you can sort of say, well, what about all those wonderful centuries when religion was ascendant and there was no capitalism and there was no commodification? Weren't those wonderful centuries in which nobody killed anybody? And <laughs> no, they were horrible centuries in which there were religious wars right and left. So, so uh, yes, and and I also I have actually many good friends in the mindfulness movement who who say, you know, the thing about the mindfulness movement is that. that people, Dharma teachers can earn a living finally. And artists can earn a living finally teaching these commodified poetry courses. Otherwise, they were working in restaurants and bookstores. And, and as they got older, that was harder for them to do, you know. So uh, the world is complicated and, and uh, everything is, 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 a, is a mess in some way. <clears throat> the more you think about it, the more, the more of a mess it is. But I think, well, I think what we're really talking about is check your heart, you know, like, are you yourself commodifying yourself in what you're doing? 
mm-hmm. or are you open and free and doing what you're doing in your life, no matter what anybody else calls it, and no matter what pigeonhole somebody would put it in, are you free and open in your living and in your heart and in your connection to other people? And I think that's the problem with commodification. It just tends to make you not that way, even with yourself. And, and oh, I think that's yeah. Wrong. I, I think you're raising a very important point there, Norman. Uh, one of the ways that I like to talk about this uh, is that uh, when you when you were saying earlier about uh, people uh, using you know spiritual practice for this benefit or that benefit or using music for this benefit or that benefit, what they're leaving out is what I like to call the vertical dimension. There's something that, that moves you at right angles to the ordinary stream of life. And it doesn't have any practical use. There may be benefits for it, but it doesn't really have any practical use. Yet it does bring a profound sense of meaning into one's life. Yeah. And that's a very, very different kettle of fish, I think. Yeah, that's right. And, and I, I completely agree. And, and the way I think of it, and it's really the same, I think the vertical... Uh, notion is a very powerful way to describe it and the way i think of it which amounts to the same but in a very different metaphor is that uh, spiritual practice that is instrumental and helpful is about your your life this life from birth to death but uh within this life from birth to death there's something more before birth and after death, that dimension, whatever that is, that's the vertical dimension. Yeah. How I see it. Again, it's talking about that's part of that. That to me is what defines actual spiritual practice. It's not just about this life. In fact, sometimes you throw away this life because uh, the vertical dimension is more compelling and more important. And that's that's a, that, that's yeah, there, I want to kind of turn this back because there's an interesting critique that kind of arose in this for me, which, you know, when all of us are of a generation that when we started spiritual work, what society had to offer was so, you might say, obviously wrong that it was, that it was, a, I mean, it was like, it was so rigid and frozen in a certain kind of way that it was easier to take a radical step to something different. Whereas one of the risks I see in the commodification of spiritual practice and all of these techniques of uh, uh, effectively managing the homeostasis of our psychic life is that we, it, it, it's like the meaning now is exteriorized and, and the explanations are so good and they're so complete that as you were saying, uh, why, am I play, why am I playing music? Well, obviously it's because it's, you know, I'm trying to make myself more relaxed and more effective and, you know, change my, uh, uh, you know, beta uh, wave <laughs> production. And, and so then the opportunity to recognize the presence of this vertical dimension that you're both referring to closes down and it becomes, it, it becomes a more narrow, uh, 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 I guess, needle to thread than what it might have been at a time when there wasn't, you know, when what you were responding against was so obviously uh, in contradiction to what one's heart felt. Well, I I found it very difficult to imagine someone like Yo-Yo Ma uh, 
practiced music, practiced the cello for his own benefit. And I, I think people, I think people are persuaded and tend to think in these terms, and I think that's a problem. Uh, because as they, I think it's what you say, Stuart, that as as they are encouraged or uh, immersed in that kind of thinking, they may lose touch with how the discipline, whether it's music or art or dance or spiritual practice or whatever it is, how that really touches them deeply. And it, it's that quality of being touched deeply that I think is in danger. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I mean, Stephen Baxter, in the beginning of one of his books, um, The Faith to Doubt, and I, I put it in my own words now, but it, it's, it, it, the idea comes from him. It's that uh, He said that Buddhism in its institutional forms has always uh, provided very powerful answers to the questions of the spirit. But sometimes the power of the answers overwhelms the stammering voice that it asks the questions. And I've always, uh, that stammering voice has been very important to me, and it's always what I've looked for when I've worked uh, with students, is it's what, are, what are the fundamental questions that they're even afraid of acknowledging that they have? Because that, that's where the um, that's where the spiritual impetus lies, and is also where the deepest relationship with life lies, and that's that's a very different thing. And I'm not talking about being happy, or you know, being well balanced or things like that. But no, responding to something. And the other thing that has come to me over the years is that, at least in the Tibetan tradition, uh, the way that awakening or enlightenment or Buddhahood is talked about, uh, there's kind of an unspoken assumption that it's the same for everybody. And that is an idea I've moved more and more away from. And I now just feel that that isn't the case because uh, when I compare notes with some of my colleagues and things like that, we really had very different experiences and talking uh, and taken very different paths. And I'm reminded of a line from Rumi, which uh, that uh, the paths to God, there are as many paths to God as there are souls in the universe. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes, as I was discussing this with Roger Walsh a couple of years ago, he said, yeah, he said, he said yeah, that's what I've always thought that the 84,000 teachings refer to. Got it. So um, uh, you're reminding me also of, um, Ken, of the, uh, of the question that uh, you put in a, an email exchange before this conversation about the, um, I think you said something like, why is it that we look to people who are, ex- you didn't put it this, using these words, exterior to society in a certain kind of way, Buddha, Lao Tzu, etc. Um, and, and Stuart just mentioned, you know, that folks of our vintage uh, tend to have uh, found spiritual work to be a different point of view, if nothing else, to the mainstream um, mirage that that people um, were mesmerized by. So um, so I'm wondering how, how that fits 
with the observations that uh, Norman and, and Ken you were making about the uh, integration of a lot of the tools of spiritual practice into the, the warp and weft of, of our educational processes, the way we think about who we are even uh, psychologically, how, that, how those have been um, interiorized within society as opposed to something that we've imagined we had to look outside society to find. I don't know if that generates any, any response, but I, I, I'm curious to, to uh, hear anything that comes up. I'm going to ask you to formulate your question again, just so I'm clear about it. Okay. So the question is, you have pointed out several and several, you have pointed out in the, in the uh, um, lead up to this conversation, Stuart mentioned, and you have been discussing this movement to take wisdom, if you will, from people who have been considered exterior or on the periphery of society. Who left the society? Why do we take? Yeah. Why do we take? Why do we take that wisdom, and how and why? Or 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 is this capitalist commodifying society the the most efficient engine for bringing that into society and making use of it? maybe appropriately or maybe inappropriately. Norm, do you want to take a whack at this one? Yeah, well, it's actually a very interesting to think about. I mean, one, one thing that scholars of religion say these days is that there's a kind of democratization of mysticism. You know, that there are all these, in all of these traditions, there, were, there was the idea that, well, these teachings are very, very rarefied and special. Only special people can access these teachings. They're, they're, mm -hmm. Not only are they not in society, but in, in the sphere of religion, it's only special people who can. And so now uh, those, those teachings are being, you know, translated and, and sort of made available everywhere, you know. And uh, so... There is, and, and this is part of the whole discussion we're having here. Part of we're, we're commodifying, making commodifying in the sense of making available to anybody who wants to access them, I suppose in parenthesis for a price. These teachings, which in the past might have been only, you know, very hard to access. So is that so? Is that a, on the one hand, I think as we're saying, that's a bad thing. That's a shame, you know, because it makes it takes away their goodness it takes away the, the real spirit and soul of them but on the other hand is this something that's positive for our societies i mean you know I, i'm imagining that in the past where you have you know religious life over on one side you know vast religious establishments you know all over the world huge monasteries full of monks and nuns everywhere which now are much reduced if not almost non-existent in most places um in the, at that time, I think society was a veil of tears. Okay, you can't really get, you, it's a, you know, you live and you die. It's a very brutal life. Nobody's going to do anything for you. Nobody's going to help you for the average person. It's just a toil to be alive. But 
you maybe you can escape and go to the monastery as maybe every fifth, tenth person did or whatever it was. Or you can die in this life and maybe you'll be reborn and be able to go to a monastery. So maybe it's a good thing that now all this stuff is being, there's an effort anyway, however successful mm -hmm. or unsuccessful it is, to infuse society with that. So that society is not just for the average person a horrible you know, veil of tears, but maybe even the average person, maybe a person who's not uh, you know, the 1%, in China, in India now, is raised up out of poverty and can have a decent life and so on and so on. And maybe part of it, so maybe these teachings with all the downsides that we're pointing out about them as they're commodified are actually making us more humane, making it, I mean, I think we're getting, one of the facts of this pandemic for me is that we were already, I think, getting really uncomfortable about the concentration of wealth in a few hands. Well, when this pandemic is over and we have a recession or a depression and we have vast numbers of people here and everywhere who are not able to eat and have a house to live in, are we going to have that level of discomfort over the concentration of wealth go through the roof and have social chaos? Or are we going to change our tune and say, yes, we do have to take care of people. Actually, societies have an obligation that nobody is without food, education, health care, and housing. I mean, so it may be a moment in which all of this spirituality makes it impossible for us not to do that. And if that's the case, then we could see this whole thing historically as having a very positive and important effect. So who knows? I'm just making stuff up, you know, and... and, and Things are never uh, nicely working out, but this is my hope, actually. I'm actually hoping that, that all of this uh, is giving us something, something good and something important for our sort of temporary project here of being a human species uh, on the Earth. I, I lo I'll just jump in real quick. I just love the, the image of commodification being a tool um, to improve the lives of many people because you've, we've just been talking about how it diminishes the lives of yeah. people in subtle ways, but maybe Both in these grosser ways. Both things at the same time, right? Both those yeah. things at the same right. time. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the analogy that I've, all, I've used for what we're calling commodification is aspirin. Aspirin originally is... Uh, the active ingredient, acetylsalicylic acid, is derived from willow bark. But at the end of the 19th century, German pharmaceuticals figured out how to synthesize it so that they could manufacture it in vast quantities. And now millions of people could have access to this remedy for colds and headaches and aches and things like that. Uh, that could never have it before. Now, aspirin has side effects, some of them problematic, which willow bark never did because it was never in, the, in that concentration and so forth. Uh, so I, th I think that, uh, you know, things like mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy uh, can be viewed in a similar way. They have undoubtedly been helpful to hundreds of thousands of people. Maybe they get up to the million mark, I don't know. 
but at the same time, they uh, they don't represent the uh, full range and uh, depth of uh, Buddhist wisdom that has come down to us. Mm. There's there's another analogy along these lines that kind of popped up for me as we were talking, and that's that if I wave a wand and put a violin in everybody's hands, <laughs> but I have a world of musicians. Uh, no. <laughs> and, and so likewise, these practices that are being offered out and uh, as it were commodified, really only have their most profoundest effects when a certain kind of intention is coupled and a dedication is uh, expressed through that practice. And yeah. so the, so, so in a way, I still think that there's going to be a distribution of, uh, as it were, you know, uh, spiritual awakening, even with a vast availability of teachings, because there's a disposition and a kind of dedication that is required in order to uh, reach these different kinds of levels or expressions of being in the same way that there is for musicians. Well, exactly. Uh, you run into the uh, aspects of any form of practice, which uh, there's talent or, you know, latent ability. Um, there's discipline. There's the effort and energy that you put into it. I mean, some of the, in, we, we see top musicians, they're usually the ones that have practiced most. <laughs> right. And, uh, and it's no different in, in, in the spiritual arena. Uh, and then you get into hierarchies, which are unavoidable. I'm not talking about hierarchies of dominance here, but hierarchies of, of competence. There are different levels of competence in the arts, just as there are different levels of competence in spiritual practice. And... Uh, what I, I came across this in mathematics, that, uh, which is one uh, I was trained in, that there were people for whom uh, what I regarded as a difficult theorem was just something that they could do on the back of a napkin. <laughs> uh, and, you know, because they had that much deeper level of insight into the way mathematics work. And, uh, you see this in, in, in music and, and all of the arts and, and really any discipline in, in, in uh, human endeavor. So uh, the, when we talk about making it equally available to people, uh, this is something that I've had to give a lot of thought to because uh, on, on my own site, I've made the teachings I've done over a certain period of time, basically from 2000 to 2010, uh, available. They aren't even, you don't even have to sign in with a, an email or anything like that. Uh, and I've wondered, you know, is this service or a disservice? And I've, I've come down to the view that actually it's a good thing to do, uh, both for the reasons that Norman was referring to and for the reasons you just referred to, Stuart. That is, on the one hand, uh, make it available to people so that people can find it. Uh, you never know who's going to benefit from it. The people who actually benefit from it are more in line with what you were saying, Stuart. There's something that resonates, that, that triggers a calling or reminds them of it, and, and they pour their energy, and then they get 
a lot of benefit. A lot of people go to the site, just look at a few things. Maybe it's helpful to their lives because it doesn't go very deep. So I, I, th this is the menu in which we work now, where it's, a lot of things are universally available. But then the uh, aspect of mastery uh, has to be uh, cultivated in a different way from the way it was in the past when things were much more restricted. Mm. That's something I think we're, we're resting yeah. with, actually. Well, I, I think it's uh, also complicated, uh, or I shouldn't say complicated, but um, expanded by the fact that I think the religious life, while it's always had the element that Ken is talking about, there is a there is a dimension of you know the development, uh, almost a virtuosic level of understanding the teachings understanding mind, understanding heart. Um, at the same time, religion has also had the brief of being of comfort to large numbers of people who, who don't, won't, for circumstantial reasons or just their innate talent, have that capacity to develop their practice to that level. And at the same time, religion, I think, has that dimension of offering something truly authentic to large numbers of people, not just popular religion or watered-down religion, but it's but seriously a, a sort of religious life that people can find uh, authentic comfort for the sort of the real. I mean, I, to me, there's a tremendous problem here. You know, not but society never. I mean, society is only an, a projection of the problem that every human being has in being human, uh, because it brings uh, up questions and, and, and disasters inside that are unavoidable. So everybody needs some real comfort and wisdom from religion. So to me, all of this has to, has to go together because that comfort will not be there unless there are the adepts and the, and the people who have deeply, deeply, deeply plumbed the depths of the religious life. And, and those people probably need, I, I mean, you know, as they had in the past, special circumstances. I mean, it takes time. You can't mm -hmm. do it, you know, in your spare time while you have a nine to five job and a family, you know, really and truly. I mean, you can do spiritual practice and it can be of enormous benefit and you can advance, but to be uh, a virtuoso on, you know, like, like Ken says, you know, Yo-Yo Ma doesn't practice the violin when he has a chance, you know, he, on the cello, he does, he's been doing it all his life. And so I think we need both those. I think, and I think we need to have a kind of a sense in which all of this has to work together. And, and yes, I mean, you know, maybe now in the secular world that we're living in, the, in, in which you can't have a really in a, in a modern republic, you can't have a state religion, which means you have to have diversity. So that means you secularize a lot of the teachings necessarily. Uh, maybe we have a chance now to put all these things together. So let's hope for that kind of sort of utopian possibility. Yeah. I, but, I would... uh, but well, I think a lot of our conversation here today is pointing out the many, many downsides of all this. And there are yeah. many. And there are many. Yeah. So I, I want to respond briefly to what both you and Ken alluded to. My experience with my my own spiritual teacher was that one of the functions that was I most came to value after all was said and done was that he made the teaching important. 
he demonstrated its importance yeah, yeah. and and then and and that was an inspiration to me and i see a similar process with my shakuhachi or my bamboo flute uh, teacher who is someone who's dedicated his life absolutely dedicated his life to the shakuhachi and uh, he jokes about it he's he's completely incompetent in every realm of life except for the shakuhachi but for him to do that gives him this unique ability to impart an experience to me and uh, a access to a subtlety that I never dreamed that I could access. And the same was true with my spiritual teacher. So I, so putting, you know, putting your teachings out online, I think serves in that function. You know, it gives, it just continues just like this show and this conversation, it continues to point out that there's something worth talking about. Mm. And something worth doing. That's a very good point, Stuart. I, I, I like that. Uh, and that one of the functions of the teacher is to, for the student to see that there's something very important there. And, and you know, for some, they will say, yeah, it may be important, but I'm not interested. But others will say, yeah, it's really important, and I want to pursue this. Uh, I haven't thought about the teacher in that role, but I think you're absolutely right. Back to you. Sorry, I was uh, uh, distracted by a, uh, a message, but uh, but this is a, a good time, I think, in the conversation to get to another aspect that I wanted to touch on, wanted the conversation to uh, explore, and um, and we've touched on some of the aspects of, of what I want to bring up already. Uh, spiritual practitioners, uh, at least in our experience having necessarily accessed non-mainstream points of view about reality in some way or another, in way, shape, or form. But um, one of the things that, that I um, have been puzzling over, because my own spiritual training was very much focused on uh, what you might call belief testing and critical thinking, but particularly belief testing. That, it was, that is to say, one of the very first things I ever heard my teachers say was, you need to determine whether what you're told is true for you in your own lived experience. So, um, um, but it's especially becoming obvious in this pandemic, I think, that some spiritual practitioners having escaped if it's a if it's a box of mainstream thinking um, will sometimes latch on to non-mainstream ideas including conspiracy theories um, for example you know the moon landing hoaxers the 9-11 inside job folks that COVID-19 is caused by a 5G. You know, there's all kinds of uh, stuff out there that in, in many cases, people who have a real commitment to um, spiritual practice will take seriously or more seriously than, than it seems to me is, is sensible. So, um, so there's this, tension, it seems to me, between, on the one hand, 
extricating oneself, however that may have happened, from the, um, the box of mainstream thinking, the box of given thinking, and, um, and then not thinking clearly about ideas that are, that are promulgated by, by folks who, um, who what I'd like to think ought to know better because as I said to you, uh, as I've said it in many cases in the past, uh, it seems to me that one of the features of spiritual practice, to some extent, as Ken was saying, this is true for other practices as well, but there's a kind of, um, at least for me, there's a feature of spiritual practice which entails self-examination and to get good at any practice, there's, a, there's, I think there's, there's some aspect of that. Yo-Yo Ma, I think, knows what he wants in a certain kind of way. Yeah. So, um, and yet that in surprising cases to me results in people who seem almost gullible in terms of when they encounter an idea that has relatively little evidence to support it, they'll just latch onto it and go with it too easily for my taste. So I'm wondering if, if this any, if any of this, you know, to my, to my two Buddhist uh, colleagues here, I'm wondering if, if any of this makes sense to you. Does this, does this resonate? Or do you um, see the same anyway? problem? Yeah. Norman? I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that uh, if you took a survey of people who believe that um, one of these crackpot things, if they are crackpot, uh, if you took a survey of the 100 people who believe in them, I don't know that that high a percentage of them would be spiritual practitioners. In other words, anybody believes in this stuff, whether they're spiritual practitioners or not. So I think mm -hmm. that it's, it's, it's a kind of a, uh, who knows why people believe in that? What, what is the profile of a person who believes in that? Mm -hmm. But I, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe you've seen surveys or something, but in my mind, I'm not sure that it's any more likely to be someone who does spiritual practice than anyone else. I tend, I, I don't have a lot of exposure to what you're describing, Rob, but uh, a couple of thoughts do come to mind. And that one of them is that uh, there's a certain, there's a maturity issue here and that uh, people don't know how to evaluate information. Uh, so that's one piece. Second, a second piece is that uh, many people want simple answers to complex questions. That would be pretty much everyone, actually. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Not everyone, but pretty well, much I mean, everyone. I mean, something was said earlier about respecting the uh, the virus. Uh, well, part of respecting the virus is respecting the complexity. Mm -hmm. 
and and that and and when you have that kind of respect you realize that you don't have control here much as you'd like to and so one way to read uh, the the kind of phenomena that you're talking about is that people are confronted with situations that are out of their control and they are coming up with ways of interpreting those situations which give them a felt sense of control however uh, illusory that may be and uh, the other uh, possibly a different way of saying that last point is something that I got from Chris Hedges the notion of crisis cults Uh, he defines a crisis cult as a um, the way that the society responds when it cannot face what is coming and it makes up a an illusion and believes in that illusion quite tenaciously because it is their lifeline because they simply can't deal with what is actually coming and i think we see this in the in the face of climate change as norman's referred to a few times is that uh, all it may be uh, man-made, you know, it's not man-made. Well, even if it is man-made, it's not, it's not having the effects that you're saying it has. But it, it, there's a, an irrational beef, which is of the order of the world is flat or the earth is flat, uh, a denial. But it's basically because people don't want to deal with the horrific complexity and uh, complete restructuring of the whole world order that's going to come when millions and millions of people are going to be forced out of regions now because they simply become inhospitable to uh, habitation by humans. Well, that that makes sense. Um, And I'm wondering if the the circumstances that you describe aren't made worse by the incredible inundation of information that we have that, that all of us in this conversation have have observed an increase in during our lives. When we were younger, there was not, the access to information was of a different quality. It was a different quality and not as many people were exploiting the information or, uh, or and disinformation for their own ends and they didn't have the platform Right. I have a friend in Los Angeles who's an expert in marketing and uh, media consultation, and he is of the opinion that 50, 80, 100 years from now, the release of Mosaic in 1993 will be regarded as one of the greatest catastrophes in the world. <laughs> uh, I remember the- when it looked so cool. <laughs> yeah, but, but it, it destroyed incredible... Uh, it destroyed so many social and uh, institutions. It destroyed a huge amounts of wealth. It created and concentrated wealth in hands of relatively few people. I mean, just you know, just go on and on. Uh, and and now it's being exploited in in ways which are undermining democracy and uh, many other aspects of, of society. And you know. It, the analogy here, I think, is the introduction, uh, it was the printing press, which had a similarly completely disruptive effect right. in the 15th century. And it took about 200 years to sort that one out. Right. 
And we're 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 going through a process like that. Um, exactly. And you know, ultimately, probably AI editors or you know, tools that sift through the information are going to be necessary because so much of it is uh, unreliable. But I want to I want to go back because you you were sort of circling a word that has come up to me in response to what Rob was asking. And that's the uh, sense of agency or a loss of agency. And, and it seems to me that a feature of someone who is given to or attracted to a conspiracy theory uh, is someone who experiences a loss of agency in their lives and they're looking for an explanation that gives them some sort of anchor and it it functions in a similar way, but it's different from what we were saying earlier in the conversation about a sense of meaning. Yes. So 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 when you know as, as earlier in the conversation we were talking about the vertical dimension as a as a ground in which I think we find meaning, and we we it, it's like you can take the same horizontal life and have vastly different senses of meaning about it depending on the depth of your penetration of the vertical domain. And then agency is almost like the uh, the false equivalent of that because agency is like I have I have an explanation now and that gives me a kind of control, but it's not this uh, natural sense of meaning. So it's almost as though agency is functioning as a substitute for uh, a spiritual, uh, the offer that spiritual practice provides. I'm going to take you a step further and say agency is functioning as a substitute for awe. Mm. Interesting. Well, uh, going a step or two back, um, so this this area that we're talking about here, maybe you could say that what stands behind it is fear. So mm -hmm. I have a deep sense of fear of the unknown and of what's going on around me or what's going on in me. I can't really cope with that fear. So to relieve it, it's almost uh, almost something that I feel in myself that is so uncomfortable. I absolutely have to relieve it. I really have to relieve it. So I, I, if I have a, like you're saying, if I have a very good explanation for a phenomenon that I'm afraid of, I've controlled it. I've relieved that fear. And similarly, um, I may do the same thing with a spiritual ideology. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'm afraid uh, about being a human being. It's too much for me. I'm, I know I'm going to die. I can't even begin to fathom that thought. But here's a religion that gives me an explanation for that. Just the same kind of conspiracy theory I've got over here, over here, <laughs> over here. I've got now a conspiracy theory in my religious, in my church, you know, or in my Buddhism. Buddhism has it figured out. I've got it figured out now because the Buddha had it figured out. And I, and I, and I trust my teacher who is standing in for the Buddha who's also got it figured out. So I'm now relieved. I'm relieved of all of that anxiety. And, and, and it's a form of agency, right? Being relieved of anxiety, I feel like I'm, I'm a person now. I'm okay. I'm all right. I've got, got things nailed down. And I think there is a, a lot of that. For me, the, the information issue I think I thought about this a lot, as I'm sure the four of us have, and it's a very, very big issue and a very, very big problem because, um, you know, it's like, unfortunately, you know, the truth 
I mean, the more information you have, the less obvious truth you find, right? Mm -hmm. Because, well, yes, this is true, but then on the other hand, there's this. I mean, we're finding this in the pandemic. You know, they were saying in a moment there, they said, don't wear a mask. Experts, don't wear a mask. And then later they said, wear a mask. You should wear a mask. Shame on you for not wearing a mask. Well, wait a minute. What happened? I don't understand. I don't understand. Well, but that's because it was an ever-shifting situation. And this, the, 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 the truth on Monday was not the truth on Tuesday. In fact, the truth on Monday wasn't even the truth on Monday because there were many truths on Monday, but they just reported the sort of best truth for Monday, which changed by Monday night. And so that's fertile ground for conspiracy theories, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Because, wait a minute, if the CDC is wrong on Tuesday, you know, what, what they said on Monday, then why isn't, why can't I put some like disinfectant in my coffee and get cured <laughs> from the virus? I mean, everybody's got a little piece of the truth. Why not this? You know, so it's going to ruin a good cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very, I think it's very, very difficult. Though. I think there's so much, the information that's out there, I, 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 it worries me because this little experiment with, uh, could there be a democracy in which actually any, anybody who was over 18 could vote? Is that possible? I mean, that depends on a sense of information that we can disagree about. But when there's no information that we can disagree about because we disagree about what's the information, wow, you know, can you actually have a democracy? And, right. and, and, uh, and, and when, when one of our political parties is, is, is uh, determined to exploit that very fact for its own uh, survival, boy, oh boy, oh boy, this is, it, it's very worrisome to me. Uh, I agree. I agree with uh, the sentiments you just expressed there. I, I feel very anxious for the same reasons. But the uh, <clears throat> one of, one of the things I want to go back to. Uh, you, you mentioned fear, Norm. Uh, I, I think I think you're right. I mean, it, it's fear of the unknown and fear of one's ability to be able to meet it. Now, that is something that I think we uh, develop a relationship with in spiritual practice. Uh, because if our practices are any good, that is, you know, they bring us into that unknown, and we don't know. We don't know who we are. And the practice is about finding a way to be in that unfathomable groundless being, a groundlessness of being. Okay. Big words, but you get what I mean. Yeah. Uh, again, I want to emphasize that isn't why we do it, it's so that we can face situations like this. But uh, it is an aspect of, of any substantial discipline across a broad range of practices that brings you into not knowing, I mean, I'm sure musicians find the same thing when they're in the middle of a piece and they, they have to let go and, and trust their body and trust everything and just let the music play itself. I think there's probably an analogy there and, and certainly one finds that in the accounts of a lot of people in athletics and sports. 
and that, that I think is a really valuable quality to life that I think we should be cultivating as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I think one aspect that of what you just said that rings very true for me now is that moments of crisis like this from a spiritual perspective are moments of opportunity. Not because we are going to change anything and not because we're going to make the world a better place or a worse place or anything like that, but because moments of crisis basically un, you know, undermine the frameworks of comfort of mind that we have such that we have the opportunity to put attention on the very thing that you're talking about, that, you know, the fear, the unknown, and, and to find solace in that uh, unfathomable groundlessness of being and if we can when we turn our attention to that I think it's a, it's it we're using the time and you're, we're using the um, the crisis as a uh, in a way that's uh, very I don't know how it's it's it, it's useful I don't I, I guess I don't know how to I, I, you no, it sounds too utilitarian. I mean, it, it, it oh, seems it, like it, a, a different it, kind of response. It's meaningful to use. Yeah. Yes. And 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 I think there's a very I think there's a very significant difference between what is meaningful to us individually and what is useful in terms of society. I think. Yeah. Because otherwise we get into everything. You're right. Because I was conflating. I was there. I was conflating uh, uh, my disposition towards. Uh, deepening meaning as mm -hmm. utility and it's not really utility it's utility in the sense of the way uh, I seem to structure my consciousness. And to give you a concrete example I used to uh, convene a group of Buddhist teachers in Los Angeles when I was there and uh, during one of our meetings I was uh, described you know the difficulty I was having uh, in adjusting to uh, an effect, a, a very profound experience of, of utter groundlessness, uh, and you know, which continued over a course of uh, almost a year, uh, and made a very big difference in my life. And, and one of the other teachers in, in this group said, "I could never do that. I, I could never live with that kind of groundlessness. I have to have things to find." Well, let, let me uh, let me jump in here because I want to push back a little bit, in part, on uh, the statement that that we always that we can't have any, or we ought not to have any personal agenda about about compassion. You know, if I'm going to train myself in compassion, then it's on, it's only really authentic if I'm if excluding myself. But it seems to me that that in fact, compassion to one towards oneself is and can be as authentic as something else or a part of a generalized authenticity um, about compassion. I mean, I, I, I realize the difficulties in, what I, in, well, in how I'm framing this, but I, but, but I don't want listeners to get the idea that, um, um, that, that there's no, that there are no side benefits that they ought not to at least, no, you know, it, it, be well, ready to welcome into their lives. I, I think this is important, Rob. I mean, basically, we're using compassion in two different ways. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that, that and I think that's a problem because uh, with I, I use compassion as it is defined in in, in in Buddhism, which is the wish that others not suffer. Yes, I get uh, and that. The, uh, the and when you, the phrase "have compassion for yourself" is so antithetical to that training. Uh, I mean, I know it's become a saying, almost a cliche, and Yes, in the West. But to me, that that is much more about, you know, and certainly I struggled with this in my own practice, accepting what one is and one's limitations fully and completely. So that's different from compassion, the wish that others not suffer. Hmm. Okay, because I, I, I myself have, have seen those two, the clarity of, of, of seeing myself and seeing others in our fragmented, unhappy natures as not really being different. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, well, that's your experience. And that mine, mine's, mine's yeah, no, no. I, I mean, I, 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 I get... I, and I think part of it is because that's how I was trained. I mean, it was, right, right. Yeah. Right. How, how does that land with you, Norman? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's, as I'm listening to both of you, it, it just seems like a, a conceptual language kind of uh, issue because mm-hmm. I don't think there's so much difference there. I mean, um, uh, I don't know, you know, the way I learned Tung Len practice, uh, and, and can, I, I learned it from Pema originally, and I don't know if, if she adapted it or this is traditional, but it starts with generating compassion for yourself on the theory that this is the basis for the ability to be concerned for others. So uh, in my way of looking at it, it's, it's really one one thing because my sense of me as an atomized, painful individual in pain is an illusion. I'm not, that's not, insofar (laughs) as I feel that way, I'm confused, right? The truth is that I am just the others that I'm compassionate for. So that's right. I I need to be concerned only for others because there is no other me besides those others. So that's why compassion for others and compassion for self are enwrapped uh, around each other, and and I think that uh, in a way the the uh, the the in, in a way I think what what I love about what Ken is saying is that um, it's taking away when we say self-compassion, right? Well, we're actually when we conceive of that in as we are normal people in the world, not Buddhists we are conceiving of the self that we're going to be compassionate toward as being me, the atomized individual who's not others. That's so a, we're that's, actually reinforcing. In, yes. in self-compassion, we're reinforing our pain. I, I completely... I It's yeah. very uncompromising on that level, and it's very, very healthy. It's very healthy because... I, I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And... and um, Thank you, Norman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My pleasure. We've, we've because, reached a breakthrough. Because, because yeah, because the uh, um, uh, I agree with you that that when I see 
have, when I see admonitions to have compassion for yourself, it's almost entirely, inevitably, in a psych, in psychological terms that yeah. that that reify um, yeah. that self that yeah. you're talking about, yeah. and 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 that makes perfect sense to me. It, it would even um, in in fourth way language, it it would be uh, coincident coincident with uh, something called uh, self calming. Yeah. And, well, people people often say, "I beat myself up. I think I'm such a terrible yeah. person. I should think more highly of myself." And right. I say, "No, you're right to beat yourself up. You are a terrible person." It really, <laughs> <laughs> it really is true, you know. I mean, you're just mm -hmm. self-centered, and just like me, I'm the same way. You know, it's I have no good thoughts to think about myself. I really don't. You know, I fall short. It's a terrible disaster being a, being a human being having this sort of like self-view trip going on. It's awful, you know. We're right to be completely complaining about ourselves all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I guess we've plumbed that one. <laughs> yeah, we got that one down. Yeah. I mean, this, this call is kind of, or I should say this conversation has been focusing on, if you will, spiritual responses to the pandemic as a sort of broader theme. Yeah. So I don't know if uh, either of you have have a topic that you'd like to uh, get into, but that would be fine for the final half hour, if someone does. Well, and maybe let me let me share uh, the thought that I've had about. Uh, I gave a talk to our Dharma group about about um, specific spiritual, specifically spiritual practice during the pandemic, and one of the one of the points I made was that. Um, we are living as hermits. We're, I think, Ken, your life probably is not all that different because you've been living quietly and living alone for a while and not, not doing a whole lot of stuff. But for a lot of people who are used to getting in the car in the morning, going out and working elsewhere, uh, we're, we're at home. And we're either at home alone or we're, we're at home uh, with one person, some people have families with children at home or at home with them. But the fact of being at home, being in restricted surroundings really is, I think maybe uh, Stuart or um, Rob referred to this earlier. It's actually very good for spiritual practice. Hermit practice is good. Doing the same thing repetitively without seeing a lot of people, without a lot of variety is very, very good for spiritual practice. So, to conceive of ourselves as hermits and, you know, focus on our practice during this period of time is really a, a great idea. And even when we're with one or two other people, it's very challenging, right? Because we're with them there 24-7. And uh, so to be kind and considerate of another human being when we're a little bit ragged with them from seeing them all the time, that's a spiritual challenge as well. Uh, if we're with children, uh, even, even more so. And then we're seeing each other on Zoom. And that's a whole practice in itself because it seems to me that on Zoom, you know, we're not together on Zoom, actually. It's, it's, I think to me, seeing our friends or other people on Zoom is the equivalent of being like a hermit in a cave with closed eyes, sitting in meditation, meditating on sentient beings with the desire to generate compassion because we're seeing little pictures that suggest human beings. And maybe we're recalling our past experiences with those people. 
or if it's somebody that we don't that we have never met before, where we we're recur where we're thinking about experiences in the past we've had with other people. So what I'm saying is that that we should view Zoom meetings as literally as formal practice opportunities to generate compassion. And I think we should all have a little verse that we compose that we recite to ourselves before we go on Zoom, setting the intention that during this period of time, the reason for my uh, being in contact with these other people is to remind me that even though I'm only seeing and being with one person or two people or just myself, in fact, I am so grateful that there are other people in this world uh, in, in a way that I wasn't before when I saw them all the time and took them for granted. And in fact, they gave me all kinds of problems that they're not giving me now because I only see them on Zoom where they can't really bother me. <laughs> so, so in fact, I'm only seeing, you know, this side of them that I love and, and admire. And, 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 and so I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's an act of compassion. It's compassion practice being on Zoom. So like I'm, 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 I'm genuinely happy to be talking to you guys because, uh, you know, it takes me out of my own solitude, which can be, you know, beautiful and also transcendent and also painful and stinky and boring. And also it reminds me how great it is that there are other people in the world, particularly other people like you that are, you know, have like me, many, many years of spiritual practice. I can be in dialogue with you. I have these people in my life. What a fantastic thing. I'm so happy about it. I probably would not have noticed that if mm. I were with you in person, the way I'm noticing it now. So in fact, Zoom is has many limitations because we are not together. But it does have this uh, advantage of being a unique source for generating compassion if we intentionally take it that way. So I've been sort of sharing those thoughts with my own community uh, for specific practices during the pandemic times. Interesting. I hadn't really looked at it that way, so thank you, Norman. Yeah. Well, it is, it is the case that I'm discovering through Zoom a lot of different conversations and a lot of different connections with people that I wouldn't normally have. And it's as simple as, you know, because my 94 year old mother is sheltered in place. We've had, I've arranged zoom conversations with uh, my siblings who live in, you know, Arizona and uh, Missouri. And I realized, well, we could have done that before and there's, and we didn't. Mm -hmm. We sort of accepted because we had uh, uh, the physical presence option. I accepted that uh, that was, you know, those limitations would be, you know, explain how I organize my life. But I'm realizing there's lots of ways to have connections that I didn't have before. Mm -hmm. And I noticed this with uh, uh, when we talk to people with online sanghas that what usually happens with a group is you have a group of people who get together and then someone moves away, uh, another person moves away, and all of a sudden those people come back with Zoom in ways that uh, uh, wouldn't have uh, uh, been possible if we just, if we didn't use that. So I, I wholeheartedly agree. And it's, it's, it's just, it's a different mode of connection. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have uh, my weekly Dharma meeting. Uh, yeah, there's now about twice as many people or almost three times as many people attending. Just like you're saying, people who used to attend, I'm very, people I'm very close to, but they've moved away and can't, couldn't have attended before. People who uh, I practice with in other cities, who I see two or three times a year when I'm in those other cities, now they can come every week. So yeah, there are those kind of uh, beautiful advantages that we would not have discovered, even though they were there anyway, we wouldn't have discovered them or accessed them uh, unless uh, we had this necessity to do that. So. I think things will permanently change in relation to some of those uh, things after after the pandemic is over. We'll have to reconsider how we do a lot of things. That makes sense. So, I, so uh, I mean, it sounds like sounds like you're suggesting that that in fact this tool, whether it's Zoom or some other app, um, will become more of a part of the. Um, well, uh, the personal toolbox and the spiritual toolbox. Mm-hmm. I think so. That makes that makes sense to me, and 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 why shouldn't it? But it is amazing that it's taken this to to yeah. demonstrate that to us. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm not gonna <laughs> jump onto this right away. Because, <laughs> uh, Stuart laughs. He knows me too well. Uh, <laughs> I, I have great respect for human proclivity. That uh, people want to be in the same room. They actually want to be together, mm-hmm. and so that. Uh, and and I've tried holding meetings where some people are in the room and some people are dialing in through something like Zoom or Skype or something, and that's very difficult. Uh, and and even conference calls where there's when I was working in a company that had based in New York, but had a very large LA office. We'd have these conference calls with people in close uh, offices. And they were very difficult uh, to have a real discussion. Uh, so I'm, I, I agree uh, with what uh, Norman is saying that, and uh, Stuart, that it creates possibilities of, of a connection and interaction and I think that's been really helpful uh, and important to a lot of people uh, and certainly the anal- the uh, matter of people moving away then they're no longer part of the group that actually meets in person now they can be so Norman's finding his groups are fuller um, but I'm I'm not at all sure I'm not at all sure how long it'll last. I'm not sure what time or so forth, but I, I, we're getting close to the end, right? Yeah, we're getting close. We, are, get, we, getting lost, close we lost to the end several minutes there. So. Yeah, right. Sorry, sorry about that. Well, yeah, you, you, uh, Norman gave a lot of good stuff about why uh, Zoom won't uh, and virtual meetings aren't the same as real meetings. <laughs> yeah, we 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 caught that. Oh, yeah. you didn't catch it. Okay. Yeah, they will not. They will never substitute for real meetings. But I think it, it's an interesting point that I think maybe you made, Ken. That when when this is over, assuming it's ever over, and assuming we it's ever safe to be in the presence of another human being, and we're doing that again, it may be that we don't like Zoom anymore. We only mm-hmm. like it because it's all we've got. You know, it'll 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 change. It'll change at that point. I read an article from the Guardian today about 
that at least until a vaccine is developed, we're going to learn to live in pods and the pods are going to yeah, yeah, that's right. impose things. Yeah, I think that'll make, that'll happen. Yeah. I don't think it'll work. Well, I don't think, be, I, yeah. I, when I read the article, I, I didn't like it for two reasons. One, I don't think it, I don't think it'll work. It's impractical. And the other, I think is a really bad idea. Uh, particularly in this country, because you're got, these pods, if they should form, will become ultra defensive, and I think it'll just create more division. Well, what, but, what, what is meant by pod? I'm, I, I haven't read the article, so I don't know. Well, it, it's a group of people who've decided that they're going to associate each with each other yeah. without uh, social distancing. But the understanding oh, is oh, that they're going to be very careful about who they meet, and they aren't going to bring virus into the into the pod. Right? Yeah, I see. And yeah, I, I've thought of that. I've thought of that, and I, and I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's that is true. But on the other hand, at some point, you know, we're going to say to ourselves, you know, I haven't seen another human being except in passing, besides my wife, and now let's invite Ken. To come to our house, Ken will a pledge to be very as safe as we're being. Our, we'll explain our level of safety. He'll explain his, and we'll agree we're going to keep to this. And as long as we keep to this, it should be safe for Ken to come to our house. And Ken, yeah. you know that sort of thing. You know what this reminds me of is the negotiation of sexual politics uh, in the face of HIV. That was the analogy in the article. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But the yeah, thing is like that, that once once you. The other thing that's going to happen is, I'm not sure how it is in Marin County where you are, Norm, but here uh, we've started to have testing on demand. Now, yeah. the uh, availability of tests isn't meeting the demand. They're hoping to beef that up. But that is, that is the crucial step is to get uh, testing on demand. And then as long as you're, and then you're going to get repeated testing, and as yeah. long as you're negative, then you're you're safe to be with other people. Yeah, uh, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's we're never quite so sure about that. Right. Well, we're never quite so sure about a lot of stuff. Well, there are uh, reliability issues with some of these tests. Right. I, I understand that too. Right. Right. Anyway. So, 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 uh, maybe by way of uh, drawing to the close, uh, there was yeah. a question. I think that. Uh, Ken, you had raised in uh, email, which was for you know for both of you. I'm interested to know after decades of practice, um, you know, oh. you'd raise the question of what is it you've come to value most, and what have you have you what have you come to reevaluate? Yeah, it's a big question. I mean, it's a whole another conversation. But just to hit the highlights for me personally. Uh, I think the biggest thing that uh, the two biggest things that I've come to reevaluate uh, or, or respect very deeply is that uh, culture influences uh, transmission, formulation, etc., very, very deeply, and that needs to be respected. Uh, you can't factor it out completely, but you've got you've got to question things pretty strongly if you, otherwise you're, you end up practicing on somebody else's agenda. And the other thing, I suppose it's related to this, is uh, 
what I said earlier uh, in that quote from Rumi uh, about there are as many paths to God as there are souls in the universe. I now see spiritual practice as very individual, that the teacher's role is to help the student find a way, uh, not the way. Uh, and uh, and I mean, it starts with a stammering voice because the, the questions that the student may come to the teacher with may not be the questions that are on the teacher's mind, but the teacher's responsibility is to be able to hear and listen to those questions and then help the student find a way to come to terms with those questions. And that's what's going to, in the same, I've used the music analogy again, is that the person comes with, you know, the, there's, they want to learn how to play music, and the, but they have a certain kind of music that means something very deeply. And, uh, you know, maybe it's Baroque and, and trying to teach them how to play jazz is not going to work. <laughs> and so forth. So those are the two things that I've come to reevaluate and also value. Norm, back to you. Over to you. Yeah, that was wonderful. Yeah, I, I, I would share those exactly those things. That, that, that's how I feel too. Um, I, I think for me uh, specifically, I uh, came to the practice uh, uh, for myself and, and within myself. I was not at all interested in in sangha or other people, particularly. Uh, it was just something I had to endure in order to do the practice. <laughs> but uh, I feel the opposite way now. Now, now I, I now You're a better I man than I. I haven't changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now, now I feel the opposite. I, I'm so appreciative of everyone I practice with, and, and they're awesome to me. Every every one of them, you know, they're awesome to me. And I, and I and it's them who keep me going at this point. So I really flipped entirely uh, in in that regard. I've totally totally changed upside down in that regard. But uh, I also feel just like Kim said that that um, you know as a writer, I know that in order to say something that seems coherent on a page. I have to reduce the vast unknown aspects of what I'm thinking to something that seems to make sense. Uh, so it makes sense to me that the teachings are like that too. The teachings are an attempt to make sense out of something that, that's why uh, they, they say in, in Dharma, Buddha Dharma, awesome to me, new in this person. So, so that's why they, each encounter gives a new, a new Dharma. Yeah. Well, the, the quality of the dialogue has been such that you've been frying uh, my computer pretty consistently. <laughs> So that, that that is a, a good sign uh, in one sense, uh, a bad sign in terms of uh, <clears throat> catching the end of the uh, recording appropriately. I was certainly enjoying your answers, I have to admit, until uh, we lost the tail end of uh, Norman's, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, how we, let, let's let's uh, let's wrap it up. Yeah, let's wrap it up. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll wrap it up. I, I, well, I'm uh, if we go on very much longer, this will happen again. So, yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. Well, so, so Norman, just uh, you, you are wrapping up on um, uh, what you have valued and uh, what you've revaluated. I'm wondering, Rob, if you had anything to add to that. Well, I would say that that uh, I've come to see that 
um, questions are everything. I used to think that answers were everything. Yeah. And now I know that questions are my friends, answers are not my friends in the same way that I used to think of them or reach, used to uh, grasp after. And so there's a, our, my teacher's teacher came up with uh, something, a, a practice um, called centrum of gravity question, a question which is meant to disturb the inner workings um, within, the inner workings which seek to grab for answers. So, so that's, that, that's what I, where I would summarize. How about you, Stuart? I think that what came up for me in this is uh, a lot of the question we were talking about, about life and just living life, I've come to value more than I valued, like the particular things of what I'm doing. And this idea of the vertical continues to sit with me. This is great. <laughs> but um, the... Um, the other thing I, I think I've come to notice is that for a long time I had this idea of the exclusivity of spiritual practice. And because I work in a corporation in the world, uh, I'm out dealing with people. I've found that uh, ordinary life is a perfect ground for spiritual practice. And it, I, don't, I don't have to dress it up in special robes or special colors. It, it really there's a transmission that happens if you are interacting with another person with intention. And so I find that for me, my, the character of my practice is trying to remind myself and bring myself back to that presence. And I find, and I, I see moments where that actually uh, touches people as much as it might, someone might be touched if I were in a more orthodox or formal spiritual context. That's great. Yeah. yeah. That's the last article I've got to write for my book is on that subject, Stuart. Perfect. Uh, good. Well, we, well, this is this has been a, a, a such a powerful conversation that the universe has had to try to <laughs> juggle our elbows, interfere, etc. Yes. So, um, so uh, hopefully, I'll be able to recover a coherent. Uh, <laughs> no, I think we should record the whole thing and just play it like this. With all the <laughs> I think I think there won't be any uh, problem with having uh, little blemishes here yeah. and there. Uh, maybe you'll even record the private conversations that Ken and I were having when you guys disappeared. Oh, yeah. uh, I I, 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 ho I wish we could. I don't yeah. think we did. I suspect <laughs> that that won't. Uh, your privacy will be uh, assured here. <laughs> but well. well well, thank you both for joining us. It was really wonderful to see both of you, and especially Ken, who I, I miss seeing. So we will see you later. All right. Uh, All right. I really appreciate the invitation to be on. I always enjoy our conversations with the both of you, and Norm and I missed our regular lunch. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, so it's very nice to reconnect with him, too. So All hail to Zoom. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Zoketsu Norman Fisher and Ken McLeod, exploring key questions in contemporary Buddhist dharma, Western spiritual practice in general, and the potential for transformation in multiple directions inherent in the modern crises of the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change. Next week on the show, we feature a telephone conversation with Lopin Barbara Dubois about her latest book, Brave, Generous, and Undefended, Heart Teachings on the 37 Bodhisattva Practices. 
Brave, generous, and undefended is a profound teaching on how to become and how to live as a bodhisattva dedicated to the liberation of all. To the classic pith instructions of the 37 bodhisattva practices by the 14th century Tibetan teacher Tukme Zangpo, contemporary Western teacher Barbara Dubois brings her fresh, energetic, penetrating wisdom from the heart. Rich with insight and fearless love, these teachings embrace us to participate in intimate, dynamic discussions that vividly demonstrate the transformational power of the bodhisattva intention in relation to life purpose, suffering, relationships, and spiritual paths. Arrows of love and truth pierce our illusions of self and separation, showing us that we already are what we aspire to become, embodiments of truth and love. This profound and practical book will encourage, guide, and invigorate beginning seekers and advanced practitioners in any tradition, as well as those with or without a formal spiritual path. The 37 Bodhisattva practices, considered the essence of the Enlightenment path, require no erudite explanations or secret initiations, but they do upend our minds, so it is helpful to have a teacher unpack them for us. Dubois delights in the task as a long-time practitioner familiar with both the tricky conditioned mind and what it is hiding from. Addressing both our own longings for happiness and freedom and the root causes of our confusion and pain, the Bodhisattva trainings turn our self-absorption inside out, revealing the good heart that seeks ultimate freedom for all. Dubois' teachings clearly show how love and compassion bring us into the Bodhisattva path and the intentional wholehearted process that transmutes mind of self-grasping to the awakening mind, bodhicitta. Her invitation, take what speaks to you and test it for yourself. Contemplate and practice on it until you attain confidence and then continue for the benefit of all. Tune in for that show on Saturday, May 16th from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.